Hello, it's Shahid here and welcome back. Our award show is open and the next deadline is the 8th of March. Full rundown of all deadlines are on our website. If you would like a shout out on these episodes for any open roles, production services, or even if you're out of work and you want to let people know where to find you, just email us at awards at creativefloor.com. So today we talk to Steve Hudson, who in my opinion anyway, is an icon, an absolute living legend in the world of advertising. And we have his brand new platform, The Power of Advertising, in the show notes. So please do check it out if you haven't seen it before and you'll see exactly what I mean. Steve is one of this year's Creative Law judges and hopefully it gives you an idea of the caliber of judges that we have on our panel. Uh, just having someone like Steve looking at your work, judging it is is just incredibly, incredibly special for the health and wellness industry. This is a masterclass on how to be better, how to sell work. And I think if you absorb everything that is happening in this recording, you'll also know how to be an absolute legend. I know you're going to love this. Enjoy. <music> All right, well, hello and welcome, Mr. Steve Hudson, founder of The Power of Advertising. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Friday, it's uh, kind of grey London, but hopefully we're about to bring some sunshine into people's ears. You're a massive, massive superstar in my eyes. You've done some incredible, groundbreaking work within the advertising industry, and we will add your work into the show notes so people who haven't heard of you maybe you've been living on the moon or something who don't know who you are can go and check out your incredible portfolio but I just thought it would be really fantastic for all of us to just get a little bit behind you journey into the industry best lessons uh, any tips of how to get the incredible workout like you've done would be just fantastic is that all okay Steve yes absolutely Let's talk about when I first started to notice advertising. And it was when I was a kid. And I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember there was only like three channels, <laughs> right? <laughs> and only uh, one of those channels had commercials, and that was ITV. And I remember one day we were watching some program, the whole family, and the adverts came on. And my dad said, the adverts are the best things on TV, Right. He thought the adverts were better than the programs. And to a certain extent, we're talking in the 70s. They really were. They were absolutely amazing. And it was, the, it was when advertising really, really took off, in my opinion, certainly in the UK in the 70s. So, you know, I grew up watching these amazing commercials. And I think whether I knew it or not, something must have resonated with me because I ended up going to art college. And then at art college, I didn't study advertising at all. Uh, I actually did graphic design and somehow I managed to get a placement at Grey's, Grey Advertising. Went on a placement, I think I got paid £30 well, for the placement that week. <laughs> uh, a lot of money back then or, or not? Well, no, no, it wasn't a lot of money. But what struck me was I'd never been in a creative department before. I never been in an advertising agency before, and I really didn't know what to expect. But I, the thing that struck me, there was loads of people walking around in their normal clothes. They didn't wear suits. They were just in their normal jeans and T-shirts. 
And I just thought, wow, this is just like an extension of college. <laughs> what a, what a, and you can get paid for this. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have a book. I didn't have a book at all. And then I, after the placement, which I think was about two weeks, uh, I then put a book together and managed to land a job on my own to an agency called Horner, Collis and Curvin. And that was my first placement. And from then on, I was in the world of advertising. I met my partner. I got hired on my own, which I didn't realize at the time was completely unique. Hardly anybody got hired on that. I don't honestly know how I managed to get hired on my own, but somehow I got hired on my own. And then I had to find a partner. And I, I, I looked out by meeting a girl called Victoria Fallon, who was copywriter and I was an art director. And from then on, I only ever worked with Victoria. Yeah. And then what happened then is that, that we hadn't got a book together. Then what we did is we then made a book together. And eventually we got a job at BMP DDB Needham, which is now Adam and Eve. And it, that's when the first buds of the career start to take off in advertising. Where are we time-wise? Are we in the 80s or still in the 70s? No, 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 no. So, uh, so BMP, we joined in, I think it was 91. Okay. Yeah. So, and it, the crate department was, it was one of the, I think one of the greatest crate departments of that period in advertising. Uh, you know, we had Frank Budgeon was a creative, right? He was a creative and a creative director. This was, and he just started to direct. So he was one of our creatives. And then, and then we had, you know, Tim Riley, Pete Gatley, Tony Cox was creative director. John Webster was in the office just down the road. Tony Davison and Kim Patworth, who ended up being ECDs of Wyden Kennedy. They were opposite our office. It, it just, the department was just unbelievable. And what was great about having a department like that is that when you come up with an idea, you could just literally float it in front of another team and go, do you like this? Do you get it? And they would help, you know, everybody helped each other. It was like, you you couldn't really um, go wrong once you'd got an idea that was like, because there would be somebody who would help you out and craft it as a junior. So that was amazing. And that's where we sort of really, really learned the ropes about advertising and we uh, we couldn't help it really. And uh, it was really funny because we had a short list of agencies we wanted to go and work at, at A-list and obviously BNP DDB was one of them. And somebody said, oh, you should try and see Frank Budgeon with your book. If you go and do that and he smiles at one of your ads in your book, it means it's an award winner. <laughs> so, and we went, really? Went, yeah, if he smiles... Just even smiles, a little tiny raise in the corner of his mouth. It's an award winner. So we thought, oh. so we went to see him, got in to see Frank. God knows how we did. It was so hard to go and see these people at this time. It was like really hard to get in. And we sh and one of the ads that we did, he smiled at. And we looked at each other, oh, my God. Then he said, oh, you should meet Tony Cox. And then the other thing somebody said to us, he said, if you see Tony Cox after seeing somebody else there like Frank, and Tony offers you a cup of tea, you've got a job. <laughs> <laughs> so so we sat there and he was looking at the book. He said, this is great, this is great, this is great. And then we, he looked at us and he just was a bit of a moment as like a, a silent pause. And we all looked at each other and he went, do you like a cup of tea? And then he went out and got a cup of tea and me and me went, oh my God. And then we got hired. So yeah, that was a, a an amazing moment, actually, and you know, and, and um, Tony Cox was. Uh, I'm very fond of Tony. He was a, 
he was he was a brilliant creative director actually there's lots of different types of creative directors but and, and Tony was just such a brilliant hirer. He, I was going to say that because he hired us, but I mean, he he hired some of the most talented, like teams. Like yeah, another team he hired was Paul Gay and Steve Reeves, who are now both directors. But they were a brilliant creative team as well. And yeah, he he was just a really great. He had a very laid back approach about things. Uh, we had a great time there, and we spent four years there, and then eventually we went to um, BBH. And the reason we got to BBH is that ad that Frank smiled at was an ad f- for King Shield. Well, it was it was actually for a light switch. You know those automatic light switches that you plug in and make it look like you're in your house. Yeah, that it was for that product. So what happened is Frank said, "I want to shoot that." So what he did is he had in your book. Yeah, he yeah he said, "I want to shoot that because I think I I I think this is going to win awards." And so he. I'd somehow on another shoot he had some spare film and at the end of the shoot he just we went round to, to this house and got the light switches to come on and shot it and then on the back of that we did the reverse sell we actually won a client with it and once we'd won a client with it then the client paid for it to run and it won a gold at can was that your first year no that no that was that wasn't our first year it took, a, I think it took about two years eventually for the right circumstances to arrive for him to be able to shoot it. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was probably within the first two years, but I don't think it ran until the third year. And then we entered it for Cannes and we had that on our reel. And then we heard BBH might be looking or BBH approached us. I can't remember now, but we went in and on our reel, even though it hadn't run that at that point, was this light switch ad. And I think that light switch ad got us the job at BBH. We've been at uh, B- BMP DDB Needham about four years. And you might be thinking, well, why did you leave if you loved it? I said, we did love it. But this is a thing that Victoria and I found. I don't know if this is a tip or anything. I, I don't really know. It's just the way we worked. We found after four years... As a creative in an agency, we started to lose our enthusiasm and we started to lose our inspiration, maybe because we felt that we'd gone through. Four years was about the amount of time it would take for you to go through and work on all the clients. And when we would felt we'd worked on all the clients, I think we had a desire to go, well, I want, we want some new clients. So that was part of our reason why we wanted to move on. It was nothing personal against the agency that we'd worked at. We loved all we loved all the agencies we worked at, pretty much. But we just needed renewal. You know, it's almost like, like buying a new pair of shoes or a new pair of trousers. You just feel different, don't you? And that's kind of how we felt by moving, yeah. Just a question then. So obviously you're mentioning like some like legend names, right? Frank Budgin, John Webster, Tony Davidson, Steve Reeves, etc. Mm. I mean, were you aware when you were there of these people, obviously they were kind of like, you know, a lot older than you, a lot more experienced, but were you kind of aware of the type of people that you were surrounded by as we look back today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't not. I mean, I mean, you know, Frank Budgeon and John Webbs, for instance, I mean, they made the greatest out of all time. Yeah. Guardian points of view. Yeah. So, yeah, we were very, very well aware. I mean, it was BMP Dedevening was actually intimidating because of the level of talent. It, there was a, like, almost like a, 
intellectual hierarchy was like it was like you you had to be smart to survive it was really really intimidating but you know this is you know many people say this but it is such a great piece of advice surround yourself by the best you only ever are going to get better if you surround yourself by better people don't surround yourself with like-minded people or if you're going to do that be in a position of power so you can influence those people and raise them yeah so for us we just got better you had to get better because if you went in with a substandard idea it was almost mocked was your best lesson from john webster do you think the lesson with john webster was he was brilliant at getting things through research right now that might sound like a weird lesson but you know how much research affects us all in the business right and i mean said you know the good the bad and the ugly of research really uh, it's a good thing and it's an absolute, you know, disaster, really, it, depending on, you know, how it's used. But BMP actually invented research. They were the first agency to actually really incorporate it as part of the process with clients. John had a technique of how to get through research. And it nearly always involved a song, a piece of music. I mean, it, it you put a piece of music in it and it almost guaranteed would sail through he figured it out very quickly he figured out very easily how it easily is to influence people with a piece of music or a piece of comedy and also the other thing he also used to do is if you can put an animal in it it'll sail through research which is why john webster you had hofmeister bear cresta bear <laughs> everything. there's so many animals because you know remember the penguins thing with john smith yeah with jack d yeah that got through because he had a little bit of music on it had a dancing penguin so you know i remember the whole department working on that brief but magically john would always get his idea through (laughs) so that was probably the most valuable lesson from john actually is how to sort of manipulate research i know it sounds a bit weird it's not a creative tip but it, it, it is a technique for getting your idea through but, you know, be aware of how, how you can influence the public to like your idea and research. What we learned from Frank was basically was how to make an idea bulletproof, right? When you come up with an idea, you've got to literally tear it apart. You've got to put your client's head on and go, OK, I'm the client now. I can find a reason not to buy it. You know, with this mentality is you would go through your idea that you probably loved at 10 o'clock in the morning and then by 12 o'clock midday you torn it apart and realized no no the, the client will bomb this out or it will bomb in research so what we learned from frank was how to make it watertight and that's why the light switch idea that we did for king shield where he smiled is because in his brain because he's such a brilliant brain frank he went through all the possible shortcomings of that idea and couldn't find one which is why it made him smile so how do you learn that you learn it by just being honest, I think. You learn it by being honest with your own idea. Is there an idea that somebody could come up with that a client would buy more? And if there is, then it's not right. This is a thing that used to constantly surprise people about Victoria and I. And I, I think it's something that doesn't happen anymore. And there's various reasons for that uh, that I won't go into great detail right now. But Victoria and I would basically only come up with one idea. So when we went to like a new agency like you know, like BBH, they were people, you, you only sent, you only show one script. Yeah. And the reason was, is that I think the best creatives are planners. 
So we would always do our own research and I'd do our own planning because more often than not, during the process of planning, which goes on far too long, in my opinion, it has to be cleared by so many people within from the client side that eventually, by pleasing everybody, you end up with a completely generic proposition, which is meaningless. They might as well just put make us famous and sell, sell our product, please. That might as well be the proposition now because they're literally pointless and weeks and weeks and weeks possibly months go on during this process where you arrive with nothing right and that's not the planner's fault a lot of the time the planner will actually come up with a great proposition but it will get watered down because you know oh you didn't mention this and oh my department uh, you know in the client side will won't be happy if you've not mentioned that so by mentioning in everything then you can't mention anything so you mention nothing and you end up with a nothing proposition and i think every anyone who's a crave knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and planners will probably know what I'm talking about as well. It's a very frustrating process for the planner, I think. But what we would do is we would actually start the planning process again on our own. And we would use planners just to give us as much information as possible. All the information they probably previously gathered as they were trying to come up with their proposition. And we would just take all that information, all the nuggets and the facts, and we would write our own proposition. But we wouldn't tell anybody our proposition. We would wrap our creative idea in the proposition. So when it was sold to the client, it actually said probably what the what the planner originally wanted to put, but was dismissed. But because it was wrapped up in a creative idea, the client bought it. I mean, there's more than there's more than that reason. There's lots of reasons why a client would buy our idea, but that was one of the reasons. So yeah, I, I think. Because we'd thought through absolutely every possible scenario and we'd thought through every possible ad that somebody else could write that the client might want more than our ad. We just kept keep developing our ad or keep developing our idea until we end up with just one script. And we would go in with that one script. And I would say when we were at our peak, nine times out of 10, that was bought by the creative director and bought by the client. Because we'd done all the thinking. We'd also based our idea around the product, which seems obvious, but it's amazing how many people don't do that. And that was the secret to our success. Yeah. How long did you have for for this process? Because, you know, trying to spend the time that you've got to, you know, create your own insight, your own strategy, I imagine takes a big chunk out of your your timeline. I mean, what what sort of um what sort of timelines are you working to? Well, in those days we used to get between two and three weeks to crack a brief, right? And a creative listening now would be like, oh my God, that sounds like Nirvana. But if if a team had had a brief for one, they hadn't cracked it, then you'd probably get a week. And then if there was a panic on, say for instance, it was a pitch, you might get a weekend. That was the worst it ever got. And that was when the whole, it was all hands on deck and every single creative in the department was working on it. And everybody was called in for the weekend. I mean, I've seen some teams just recently and uh, and they said, oh, we've got a lunch break to crack the idea. And that, you know, that is absolutely ridiculous. It's one of those things that's impossible to basically, you can't, no one ever knows when they're going to crack an idea. It comes out of the ether, right? But obviously you can create deadlines and create deadlines sort of like hones your thinking. And, you know, if I'm honest, when we got a brief, we nearly always would crack it in the first day or the last day. But if you'd have just give us one day, we never would have cracked it. This is a fundamental. You cannot crack a good idea in one day. You can't do it. 
It cannot be done. Not a good idea. You can crack an idea, but you can't crack a good idea in one day. And the reason being is you have to, whenever you come up with an idea, you have to at least give it the overnight test. And then you go, oh, hang on a minute. I've just, I've just improved it. So cracking an idea in one day and agencies giving credits one day to crack briefs is a nonsense. No good advertising will ever come out of a creative having one day. And I'm currently writing a seminar which talks about the whole process and how to improve advertising, how to write better advertising, which I won't divulge now. No. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm saving that. Yeah. But yeah, one of the things I talk about is the amount of time that should be given mandatory to creatives to crack ideas. I mean, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? I mean, you know, the less time you have to, to do something, you know, obviously it's not going to be as good. And that's probably why a lot of work nowadays looks like it's just wallpaper and everything looks pretty similar, you know. So it is obvious and I think everyone is aware of it, but it's just really interesting to get your perspective of when you were working in an agency of what they did to you to set you up for success and how a lot of agencies nowadays just aren't doing doing that. The things I've got to say about it are quite harsh on agencies, really, to a certain extent, because the thing is, is that if agencies are still giving creators one day and then I'm wondering why well, the advertising is that good and, and clients, it's, it's, it's actually poor time management by the agency. It's the, it is simply poor time management. And it's an agency not having a, a good relationship with the client to actually help the client understand how long things take and on, how things should be done. Ultimately, I don't think there's a good enough excuse for bad advertising. I think there's lots of factors which lead to bad advertising that could simply be erased. I think there's a way around it to to give you the best circumstances. And, you know, a lot of what this is, is literally to do with honesty. All the bad advertising is caused by a, a not very honest relationship between client and agency. I think the way things are at the moment is I think agencies are too scared to be honest and also that then leads to clients who basically not being educated that they've got all the power because they're paying the bills there's an imbalance going off but I think it can be rectified and obviously this is part of the thing that I'm currently writing so it's going to be interesting you know how that goes down you know when I release it interestingly you you know you're talking about a bmp and we're getting into bbh now and i'm, I'm imagining we're kind of in the 90s right mid 90s yeah 90s yeah give us a sense of what it was like working in advertising in the 90s you know because it was a little bit before my time i was kind of kind of still at school then but when i got in, into the industry you know everyone's like harking back to when there was money you know when it was all a bit flash and there was more confidence around and there was some real industry superstars and was it like that? Thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, Boom CGI. Uh, they're a team of digital artists specializing in the craft of CGI animation across entertainment, advertising, and of course, pharma. The team love nothing more than taking ideas from concept through to completion. They are highly skilled in delivering character design, CGI modeling, texturing, animation, and post-production and are huge, huge supporters of the Creative Law Awards. So do check them out at boomcgi.com. Yes, uh, the 90s, I would say, was like probably peak decade in advertising. It was 
amazing. I mean, BBH literally, I mean, as a creative at BBH, it was like going, it's like being in the Marines, right? It was unbelievably stressful. I mean, literally, you made a bad ad, you you most likely, you, you're in danger of being fired. Just one bad ad, right? So it was extremely stressful. But at the same time, we were like kids in a sweet shop because BBH didn't research a lot in the 90s. They hardly used research. They were a very confident agency. You know, if John passed it, it was made. It sounds like Nirvana, doesn't it? And and to be honest, it was. John was absolutely amazing. I mean, on the power of advertising, I, I've talked about John being the best crap director I've ever worked for. It's John Hegarty, right? Just for those. John Hegarty, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So John Hegarty, I should say. Absolutely phenomenal crap director. And yeah, he passed an idea. It was made. But at the same time, that was incredibly frightening because some things could slip through the net. No one's no one's infallible. So you had to absolutely make sure that you were happy with it. Because if you went in and you went, yeah, that was it. It was like, oh, actually, I wish we'd changed that. I wish we'd done this now. It's too late. It's going. It's done. It's already gone. It's happening. So, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And you've got to remember, like, you know, in the in the 90s, you had Levi's was like, you know, it was an annual event, wasn't it? You know, it was like Nirvana to get a Levi's ad or to make a Levi's ad. It, they were always... Pretty much all of them were famous. They got, you know, the top 10 hits of soundtracks. And then you also had like at BMP, you had Volkswagen, who annually did an incredible Volkswagen ad. And then towards the end of the, the 90s at Abbott Mead, you had Volvo and Guinness. This is peak advertising. And at that time, Abbott Mead Vickers, BMP, BBH, you know, thankfully, all the agencies we worked at were the best agencies. But yeah, no, BBH was absolutely amazing. Did John Hegarty uh, interview you um, for the job at BBA? No, he didn't actually hire us. I don't think he. It was it was a team called Dennis and Steve who hired us, who were for me probably one of the best creative teams in BBH history. Absolutely unbelievable team. What made them unbelievable? What do you mean? Thank you for listening. That's it for part one. Part two will be dropping next week. So please do hit subscribe wherever you listen to your pods to make sure you don't miss it. Until next time.